if we want to walk through the uh, Gospel of John week by week, understanding the life of Jesus and what that can teach us about who we are today and how we relate to him as well. We want to be deepened in our understanding of who Jesus is, don't we? And that's what we're doing. And today's among the clearest descriptions we get about Jesus and who he is, about who his father is, and about a place being prepared, prepared for us to enjoy with the father forever. Uh, we've got a two-year-old at home, and she's full of life, and um, if you uh, have been in this church context for any amount of time, you'll know that all too well as she's running about here Sunday after Sunday. Uh, but when we really need her to concentrate, we really need her to listen, we say, Penny, listening ears on, and she goes, like that, and they're on, and that's it, like, focused attention. And I think there's an element of this morning that requires our listening ears to be fully on, okay? Because there's an awful lot of stuff that we've got to get through today uh, that's going to be so helpful to us in how we relate to Jesus and in who Jesus is. And so my encouragement to you all is to really uh, tune in, uh, because uh, I think we're all going to be profoundly affected by it as as we listen. Is that okay? Great. So we're going to read John 14 together, and we're just going to go through the first 14 verses today, and I've actually asked Emma to come and give it a read for us. So, Em, it's over to you. Okay. Good morning. Um, So, John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will, be, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father." And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Superb. There you go. The first 14 verses of John 14. And that is where we're spending our time today. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll have heard Rich say that we're now in the events of the last 24 hours before Jesus' arrest and the activities that lead to his death on the cross. And you can imagine the scene, can't you? You're at dinner with your friends and, oh, Jesus, the Son of God, is there as well, but that's that. And there's just been this tense exchange during which some of your friends have been told that they're going to betray or deny Jesus. That's what happened last week. The mood would have been quite tense around that table, all right? That's, that's what was going on there. In fact, the start of our passage begins with those words, do not let your hearts be troubled, because there were some troubled hearts around that table in that moment, okay? And this morning's message is certainly one for troubled hearts. 
and against the anxiety and the backdrop of what's been a tough season where I know that most people that I know are actually uh, feeling a little bit troubled in heart at the moment, whether it's the pressures of finance or the pressures of work or raising kids or how to balance work and life or completing studies or completing studies alongside work or completing studies alongside work and kids, exams at school, whatever it might be, it can sometimes be hard to focus on the truth of Jesus with all of these worries that can be floating around our head. Hence, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And so we are going to not let our troubled hearts be troubled anymore, and we're going to dive into John 14 and find out why. I will be honest and say that even this week, I have felt the pressure uh, of uh, of, uh, a very, very busy week. In fact, straight after this service, I get on a train to Liverpool, spending the whole of the next week at the Labour Party conference, and so uh, I felt the pressure of kind of work and balance and life, and how do you make it all work, and my kids are still here, and how do I make sure I'm giving enough time to them, and so even this week, as life is busy, I felt anxious about getting it all done, and have needed these words to speak to me personally, so um, I hope that that is exactly the uh, same circumstance you find yourself in today, that as we open up and look at these words, that your troubled hearts would be satisfied in Jesus. So even after all Jesus has said, the disciples are to take comfort. Jesus changes gear, and instead of discouraging them about what they're going to do in the coming hours, he offers them hope by telling us about who he is and who his father is and who is to come. And like I said, I've been living with these verses as I've been preparing, and I'm still astounded that Jesus, in full knowledge of what's about to happen, Jesus knows that he's going to go to the cross, actually spends the hours beforehand, comforting his disciples. You'd think it'd be the other way around, right? He's about to, he's literally about to die. You'd think he'd be, if there was ever a moment to say, guys, I'm struggling and I need some help. But instead, he's the one that's saying, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. That is the, uh, that is, uh, the, the, shows the compassion that Jesus has for his disciples and the compassion that he has for us. Hence, don't let your hearts be troubled. And it's here we're going to pick up the story, and it starts with a similar thread to what we looked at in John 13 last week. In John 13, uh, Jesus told the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you'll follow later. Jesus then carries on by talking about a room being prepared for us where he's going, and an assurance that he'll come back to us. In verse 2 of John 14 today, we're told, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? This is important for us as Christians because the implication is that there's a home being prepared for us, a home with a permanence. Ancient theologian Augustine uh, had a famous confession that included the words, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. If you were at Andy and Esther's wedding yesterday, then you'll have heard Rich uh, use that exact same quote uh, as he encouraged Andy and Esther uh, that their foundation isn't in this world and the work that they've got to do here, but in our heavenly home with our Father who loves us. And it's good to be continually reminded of that. Our restless heart uh, won't find rest until it finds rest in you. And that's why life can sometimes feel a little bit restless, I think. That's why I felt a little bit restless this week, because it's not home, it's temporary. And Jesus makes clear that he's going ahead to prepare the way, to prepare home. There's good news here for us. Those thoughts and those anxieties that can occupy our minds, those troubled hearts, they're temporary as well. That's incredibly good news for us. There's a permanent home, a place of joy and perfection that is being prepared for us. And Jesus has gone ahead to prepare the way. It's such a comfort to know that whilst we might be restless or with troubled hearts here and now, a place is being prepared for us that is trouble-free. 
and we don't need to worry about getting ready for it. It's being prepared for us instead. So for the troubled hearts this morning, take heart that a place is being prepared for you. For the restless heart, rest is coming. That's what Jesus is saying. So I don't know what makes your house feel like a home. I don't know when we start talking about home, what uh, pictures are conjured up in your mind. Especially as we start heading into the winter months, for me, the first thing I think about is getting our wood burner on at home and making it feel nice and warm and nice and homely. I'm a really big fan of scented candles, so I'll chuck a couple of scented candles on as well, maybe get it smelling nice. I'll put my AFC Bournemouth sweatpants on because I want to be feeling nice and, you know, nice and comfy and nice and relaxed. Maybe put my slippers on, relax and rest with my feet up. If we are really, really lucky, the kids will go to bed on time and we'll be able to stick a movie on. You can imagine it, the wood burner's on, the candles are on, I've got my sweatpants on, the movie's on, we're relaxing, it's bliss. That feels to me, that's home. You can imagine it, can't you? It feels warm, it looks good, I look great in my sweatpants, it smells divine, that is, that's the picture of home for me. But the reality is, actually that fire will burn out. The scent of the candle doesn't last, and the kids will wake up, and peace will be broken. It's temporary. Even my perfect picture of home in my head is shattered at a moment's notice when one of the kids comes downstairs. But there's a place being prepared for us that is permanent, and that's comforting. And it's a place where we'll be with our Father forever, and a place that we can call home. Take comfort in that today, church, that in the moments where you feel uncomfortable, in the moments where you feel restless, there will come a time where our hearts will find rest with God permanently. Our temporary worries of today will be overtaken by a permanence of a home with God. Those temporary worries here will be no more there. That's why we can take heart if we're troubled this morning, because it's only temporary, and it's going to be replaced by something that is permanent and blissful that nobody can take us away from. I've been so comforted by the disciples as we've gone through the Gospel of John because they really are every man. They're asking all the questions so that we don't have to. And luckily, uh, we've got Thomas coming this time uh, to, uh, to ask us some questions just to make sure that we really do help and understand. And that's what the disciples have done. They popped up time and time again as we've gone through the book of John saying, uh, Jesus, I don't get it. Je- Jesus, can you help me understand? Je- and so... In steps Thomas, who doesn't get what destination Jesus is talking about. Well, how do we know where we're going if we don't? Jesus, come on, we don't even know the destination. How are we supposed to know where we're going? I don't know if you remember a time before sat-nav, having a sat-nav in your car that just gets you from destination to destination. I am just about old enough to remember, I promise. And so instead of getting, uh, plugging in your phone so that you can put uh, Google Maps on or uh, using your now fancy car to uh, practically drive you there by itself, you had to uh, get the map out uh, instead. Or if you were really fancy, you might be able to go on AA Route Finder and it would give you a detailed instruction of exactly where you had to turn and when. Either way, it usually meant an argument because whoever was in the passenger seat was either in charge of the instructions or in charge of a map and then chaos would ensue. Because you'd take a wrong turning, you'd miss the sign. It wasn't my fault, it was your fault. It was the AA Route Finder. AA doesn't know where it's going. How many people, and in fact, this happened to us recently, how many people, having printed off the instructions or looked at the map, have ended up in like a field or somewhere totally nowhere near where they wanted to go? Yeah, you've had that experience, you remember that. We actually bought something off Facebook Marketplace recently, and it took us to this destination that was literally just a a field. And I was running through the field thinking, well, there must be a house here somewhere. This is where the map said it was going to be, but we were totally lost. But there you go. Uh, Praise God for sat-navs, though, because at least now we can argue with a machine rather than with each other. It's taken that stress out of marriage. 
But without a map or without a sat-nav, where do we know where to go? And how do the disciples know where to go if they can't see where Jesus is going? Thomas wants an unambiguous destination. Just tell me where it is, Jesus, so that I can start to prepare for my journey there. How can we map the route? How can we tell what, what just, Jesus, would you just tell me what to type into the sat-nav? And then I'll be able to get there myself. Thank you very much. And Jesus is quick to answer. We're to know the route because Jesus is the Son of God. We know because Jesus is trustworthy and he's proven it time and time again. Jesus knows for us. We know because Jesus then says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Such a famous phrase, isn't it? And I'm sure you've heard it before if you've been in a church context. But reading it in its context this morning helps to make it so much more powerful. Jesus is the way. He's our sat-nav. He's the directions. He's our map. But he's also the driver. He's the petrol in the car. He's the engine in the front. And he's the destination we go through to get to our final home. He's saying that he's the route and he's trustworthy and he brings life. And unlike our sat-navs, there aren't multiple routes. We can't choose a route without motorways or pick a faster route or the route that doesn't have as much traffic or the one that skips the toll roads. There's just one way. That's what Jesus says. I am the way. And it's through Jesus. And the way to where Jesus is going, that's the way to the Father and that's the way to eternal life in heaven. And it's vital to understand this, and I think it really speaks to where our culture is now, because Jesus doesn't call himself a way, he calls himself the way, the one way, the only way. Therefore, everything that isn't Jesus isn't the way. Hopefully you can track with me on that thinking. All other routes don't lead to salvation if Jesus is saying this is the only route that does lead to salvation. So no amount of good thinking or good doing can change the fact that Jesus said what he said. Sometimes, actually, when you're having conversations with your friends, it would be much easier if Jesus had said, I am a way, but he didn't. He said, I am the way. And so as Christians, we stand by what Jesus said. He's the only way. Thomas Akempis, in his book, The Imitation of Christ, written way back in the early 1400s, is famously attributed as writing, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. How about that? Written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it's a truth that's been declared for centuries, and we're being asked to find our center in it again. Today, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And that has been true uh, from the moment he said it, right the way through human history, to stood right here in October 2023 in Paul. That's the truth. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you have been talking about faith and Uh, often the line that I find comes up at the moment is that, well, actually, we are all fine believing in our own truth. You can believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and I think we're all going to be fine, and it will probably all work out. And I have certainly had those conversations, the ones that kind of, well, as long as you're a good person, as long as you get enough uh, text in in the good column compared to the bad column, that on the balance of life at the end, you'll probably skate through, you'll be fine. The problem with that is I actually can't find that in my Bible. Jesus doesn't say it, and I can't really particularly find it anywhere else either. Where, where are we getting our authority for, 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 where, for why that's true? And that's a really important thing, because when we say that Jesus is the way, that he's the only way, the only way to salvation is through Jesus, I've got something that I can point to that says, well, Jesus said it. We know it to be true because it's here. And so we have to ask, well, if we're saying that we're fine to believe whatever we want to believe, On whose authority? Where where does it say that? 
Jesus proposes that we're to take his own authority. And church history has remained unchanged on that for centuries and centuries and centuries. No updated thinking required. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. We're not invited to take that leap blindly, though. We're told to examine the evidence. And again, the disciples are true to form and step straight in. And this time, it's Philip who follows in Thomas's footsteps. He's not getting it either. He says, well, just show us the Father. You know, come on, just show us, uh, and then we'll know. And uh, that's a comfort to me, because even I sometimes don't get it on first read and have to go back and read it again. And so Jesus now needs to double down and say, right, come on, guys. This is what we're really saying. And we've been in the Gospel of John for a number of weeks now, and we've explored the claims of Jesus, and we've read about the miracles, and we've seen the healings, and week after week after week, we've examined the evidence. And so if you have been here as we've gone through that uh, series of the Gospel of John, with the context of the last few weeks in mind, what kind of conclusions are you drawing about who Jesus is? As you've sat here, and you've listened, and you've listened, and we've heard about him and the things that he's done, what are we to conclude about what we've heard so far? Jesus is clearly and boldly now drawing a straight line between himself and God by saying, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If you're not getting that Jesus isn't God, then here he's telling us straight. He's telling us the evidence proves it. In fact, in verse 11, Jesus is outright asking us to examine the evidence of who he is. Verse 11 says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He says, if you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. I'm in the Father, and the Father is is in me, and if you don't believe it, examine the evidence. Believe the evidence of the miracles I performed, and believe in me. I am the way to the Father, I am the truth, and I'm here to bring you life. We've seen in previous weeks that these sorts of claims have angered the religious people of the day. Why do you think that they're so angry in these moments when Jesus says that he's in the Father and the Father's in him? When they hear someone outright calling themselves God, of course it's going to provoke a reaction. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then of course it's blasphemous. It's plainly the work of somebody who's evil or mad, unless it's true. I've used the illustration before of a chap called A.J. Miller, an Australian man who a few years ago went on ITV's This Morning claiming that he was Jesus and that his girlfriend sat next to him was Mary Magdalene. And he sat on the sofa, and he was speaking to the host, and he was openly saying, yeah, that's, you know, that's me, yeah, Jesus, can't believe it, I know. Uh, And this is Mary Magdalene, by the way, and, you know. And honestly, and quite rightly, the uh, journalists, the presenters, they kind of went in on him. They went to examine the claims. All right, then, mate, you say you're Jesus. Prove it. Come on. We're sat right here. And he was quite rightly dismissed because there was no evidence for his claim. The second that you looked at his life, the fact that uh, the the woman sat next to him didn't even align to Jesus' biblical view of marriage, you'd rightly conclude... This probably isn't Jesus, right? That's the conclusion that we can come based on the evidence that's been presented to us. If somebody walked through the door this morning claiming to be Jesus, I think we'd all be pretty skeptical, to say the least. We might react like some of the people in the book of John did. We might get mad or incredulous or conclude that the person's evil. If we dared to entertain it for even a moment, we'd want to ask the same question. Prove it. Show us the evidence. You call yourself Jesus. Well, go on then. Show us. Show us some evidence that it's true, and if we can't examine the evidence, that we'll, then we'll rightly conclude that it isn't. And that's the basis of so many decisions that we make in life. Last year, both of our cars broke within three months of each other. It was the most infuriating thing. Although I will say I did have an inkling that my car might be on its last legs as I was duct-taping it to get it into its MOT. I thought, <laughs> you know, maybe it's time for a new car at this point. 
And so, unsurprisingly, it didn't pass its MOT, but then the other one broke down just a few months later. And so, all of a sudden, we found ourselves in this massive car hunt trying to find new cars. And I will start by saying that I find it quite stressful because I just am not a car man. I do not know cars. I do not understand cars. I need some help. And so, we had a look online, and we took some advice from people who know a little bit more about cars than, than we do, and we started thinking, right, well, how do we go about finding a new car. And finally, based on the advice that we'd got and the reviews that we'd found online and the description that you get when you're looking for cars, we settled on a car and then we went to go and see it. And we looked at it from the outside. So, I mean, so far, so good. It's got four wheels, so that's, I mean, it looks good to me. Uh, we opened the doors and had a look inside. Well, it's nice and good. It's got all nice new mats. That looks fine to me as well. That's all, you know, good. And they even let us look in the engine and I nodded like I pretended like I knew what I was doing. Oh, yeah, very good. It's got all the nice battery there. So, and, and so we're looking around this car, and we're looking, and we're trying to decide, well, is this, like, based on the evidence that we've got, the sort of car that we want to buy? But I'll tell you what made all the difference, getting in and taking the thing for a test drive. Because when you actually stand in it, and you turn the engine on, and you give it a rev, and you test the brakes, and you drive it around the corner, all of a sudden, then you know, this car works. Based on the evidence, it's not rattling, it's not making any noises. The claims that were made about this car online are true because I'm now sat in it and I'm driving it. So we paid our money, we examined and decided. And that's how we do things in life. When we buy a car, we test it out, we take it for a test drive. At the very least, you'd kick the tires, wouldn't you? Yeah, this is a car, it exists as a car. I can see with my own eyes that this is a car. When we buy or rent a house, we examine it, we go for a visit, we ask questions. If you're anything like me, I turn all the taps on. I had a bad experience once. We went to go and buy a house. We're walking around, it looks very lovely. Then I turn a tap on and nothing happens. I turn another tap on and nothing happens. I'm like, well, there's no water in this house. What's going on? And that's what we're supposed to do. You go and you test and you examine. That's what you're supposed to do. I went to India with work a few months ago, and everyone up there, when I got there, said, you've got to be really careful because the food is very spicy for Europeans, okay? They'll be very careful. Uh, but frankly, I thought that wasn't enough. Like, I'm not going to take your evidence of the fact that this food is spicy. I want to examine the evidence for myself, thank you very much. And so we started going out to a few restaurants, and the first few times, I got a feeling that something wasn't quite right, because I was eating this food, and I was like, well, it's not very spicy. And then one of the Indian colleagues that we were with said, oh, well, because you look like you do, they're, they're making it less spicy for you. They think that you're, uh, you're, 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 it won't be good for your stomach. And so I said to my colleague, tell them to make it like they make it for you. Like, I want to examine the evidence myself. I want to know if this food is too spicy for me or not. And so I examined a big, delicious bowl of it. And then I examined another big, delicious bowl of it as well. Several bowls, in fact, because I wanted to be thorough in my examination. And I included, it was flipping spicy. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I mean, like, Gaviscon spicy, you know? Like, it was, it was spicy. But it wasn't too spicy that it didn't put me off from coming back for more. I actually work at Bournemouth University, and it's full of researchers who spend their days examining evidence and testing truth. It's not good enough to say that something's true until you prove it. When you go to the hospital and you're unwell, they, don't do, te they do tests, don't they? they don't, you don't just walk in and they say, oh, well, you're ill. Well, thanks, mate. But, well, uh, they examine you. You get tested. They take blood and they come back with a conclusion based on the evidence that they've examined. You get your concluding diagnosis. 
I've given lots and lots of examples here because I'm trying to show you this is the way we do life. In every area of life, when you're doing something, you examine the evidence of it. You do an internal risk assessment. You try and look at the evidence before you jump in. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And that's really, really comforting for us as well because we're not to go into this blind. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, you're being invited this morning to examine the evidence. Look, don't just take my word for it. Look at the action. Look at what I'm doing. Look and believe because what I'm saying and what I'm doing line up. Look at the evidence. Look at the fruit of my life. Look at the miracles I performed. Have a good rev of the engine. Take what I'm saying for a test drive. Does what I say and does what I do line up? So on the evidence that you have about Jesus, the last few months as we've been going through John's gospel and looking at the life of Jesus, how we've found that he's fulfilled Old Testament scripture and shown himself to be the promised Messiah, as we've looked at his goodness and his compassion towards people who have done wrong, as we've seen him acting compassion to heal and deliver and to save. When we look at this man, do we see madness or do we see God? Because for so many in John's gospel... And for so many throughout history, and millions around the world, and hundreds of us here today, we've examined these claims and we found them to be true. Jesus is God. We took the idea that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life for a test drive and came to the conclusion that it's true, that belief in him does bring us a better future and a present hope and a truth that we can set our lives on. Bible commentator Don Carson says, thoughtful meditation on, say, turning water into wine, the multiplication of loaves, or the raising of Lazarus will disclose what these miracles signify, that the saving kingdom of God is at work in the ministry of Jesus, and in this way is tied to his very person. Not only is he God, but he also promises us that if we see this truth, if we acknowledge that he's God, then he'll show us the way to the Father, the way to a relationship with the Father, and the way to eternal life with the Father. We don't just see him as God, but we experience him as God. And what's more, we get caught up in it as well. Jesus goes on to tell us, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these. We're told to ask in Jesus' name. That's why often when we pray, we conclude our prayers by praying in Jesus' name, by the name of Jesus, that we might see the work of Jesus continue to this day. In Jesus' name, would you do it? This is such an amazing passage of Scripture because it reminds us of Christians of how much we've truly been gifted with. If we're to list it off, then he's prepared a place for us. We've been given relationship with the Father. We've been given the knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is. We've been given permission to use Jesus' name to do great things. We are blessed as Christians. Gateway Church, do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because we know the way and the truth and the life. And we can rest on the evidence of it in our lives today. By the way, when we're told that we would do greater things than even these, surely that doesn't mean that we're more powerful than Jesus, does it? What Jesus is saying here, that these things are greater because the authority has been given to us through him. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross means that the great things that we see now are more magnified because they point to the glorious salvation that Jesus has brought for us. Even these greater things still point us towards Jesus. Don Carson again, the contrast is not finally between Jesus' works and his disciples' works, or Jesus' works and our works, but between the works of Jesus that he himself performed during the days of his flesh and the works that he performs through his disciples after his death and exaltation. It's still all about Jesus. What it's saying is that death is not a limit for Jesus and his power. 
Jesus is so great that his greatness is displayed in that even we get to participate in the fruits of what he did and how he acted. It's not that we're greater, but that Jesus' greatness is manifest even through us. Isn't that cool? Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection to to defeat sin and death provided the way for us as believers in that he paid the price for all that we've done wrong and all that separates us from God. God is perfect, and as much as we hate to admit it, are not. We screw up and we get it wrong. And a perfect God cannot be with an imperfect us, except through a way, through the way provided for us through Jesus. Our imperfection is replaced by Jesus' perfection, and believing on the truth of that, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, by examining the evidence and coming to that conclusion, that he died for you and me, and actively choosing to take the roots of the Father through Jesus, will also bring life, the way, the truth, and the life, now and forever. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and he made a way, and believing in the truth of it will bring us life. And that's the refreshing thing to hear for a troubled heart. It was then for the disciples, and it is this, this morning for us as well today too. So I'd really just quickly love to offer two responses to what we've read today in John 14. And the first is to those in the room who might say that they're not Christians or you haven't had a proper look at the claims that Jesus has made. And for you, my appeal is the same as Jesus's, to examine the evidence before you. Kick the tires, take Jesus for a test drive and see, like so many others have seen, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that what he says is true. This morning, I'm not going to stand up and say, come on, let's all believe together. I want you to examine the evidence. Go and have a look for yourselves. In Jesus, we have one who claims to be the way to eternal life, the way to relationship with God, and the root of all truth and life. Truth and life are precious gifts to be given, and if somebody were offering it to me, I'd want to take that offer seriously, at least have a look. So my encouragement for you is to explore what Jesus is saying. You might want to go back and, uh, go back and listen to some of the previous uh, messages that we've, uh, that we've spoken about in John. They're all on the Gateway Church website, and you can go listen to some of those. Actually, you could do a little bit more reading. You can work your way through the whole Gospel of John with a pot of coffee in about an hour and a half, two hours. You can have a look for yourself and have a read. You can come and speak to Rich and I, and we can actually point you towards some resources that you can go away and read that might help you to examine the evidence, kick the tires and rev the engine, and come to your own conclusion about what you believe about Jesus. Have a look. Take him for a test drive. Do you believe him? Do you believe in him? At the moment, we're also running a course at Gateway that's helping people to explore these claims. So if you want to know more about that, then you can come and find Rich and I afterwards as well. And we'd love to talk to you about the course that we're running that's helping people to examine some of the evidence of what we see in the Bible. And in the room, if you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, then my prayer for us this morning is that this morning's message is refreshing for us. If you're sat here this morning with a troubled heart, if you could sympathize with me when I said, hey, my heart's been a bit troubled this week, then let yourself find rest in God this morning. Find comfort in the knowledge that our present troubles are temporary and there is a permanent, eternal home being prepared for us where we'll find rest and contentment and joy forever. In comparison, this life is going to be very, very short. Very, very short compared to eternity with God, our Father, who loves us. And it can be so difficult, and I've experienced it myself on so many occasions, 
to lift my eyes to what's eternal when what is temporary is occupying so much of my thinking, to lift my eyes up and look at the greater glory of what God has prepared for me when life now seems so much of a struggle. But actually looking back, I've found that God has been faithful even through those troubles that I've had, and he's going to be faithful to the end as he's preparing a home for us that will last for an eternity. If you're struggling this morning, I want to pray for you, and I'm going to pray for myself as well, okay? We're going to do it together, that you might have the strength to look with eternal eyes and know that Jesus loves you and that he died for you so that you could be in a relationship with your Father and that you can expect great things through the power of prayer in Jesus' name, and that he might even come and minister to us and bring us to a place of truth and life even today. Don't spend your week this week with too much focus on what's temporary at the expense of what will last forever. We've got a great hope in Jesus, and his words to us this morning are the same as his words to the disciples sat around that table. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Look to Jesus and find strength today. Look to Jesus and find comfort today. As we see him as he truly is and believe afresh this morning that he really is the way and the truth and the life, and that is a gift for us today and forever. That's good, huh? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. Uh, so do you want to come stand and join me? And I'll pray, and then we can come back and sing. Father, I do want to thank you that you sent your son to this earth, that you sent him for our encouragement and for our blessing, but that you sent him to die in our place so that he could go ahead and prepare a way for us to be with you forever. Thank you that through his death and his resurrection, he defeated sin and death and made a way for us to be with you forever, that he is the way. And I thank you that believing on the truth of that brings us life today. And Lord, I do want to pray for those in this room who perhaps are just hearing these words for the first time, that there would be a moment of examination to have a look at what you're saying. And for those of us who have examined those claims, that have believed on the evidence of the works that Jesus has done, I want to pray, Lord, that that would be like cool, refreshing water to us today. That as we look to what's eternal, that as we look and understand that a place is being prepared for us in permanence that will be joyful and comforting with no pain and no suffering, that what's temporary will fade away in our minds compared to the eternal hope and future that you have prepared for us. Lord, help us to look with eternal eyes, not temporary eyes. Help us to rest in the hope and the assurance of that again today. Lord, I want to pray specifically for the troubled hearts in this room, that we would walk out troubled no more, because we would understand that what you have for us is so much greater than what's going on today. In your name I pray. Amen.